Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Kerry Keating made a name for himself over the last 20 years as one of the best recruiters in college basketball. He was an assistant coach for a handful of programs, including Wake Forest, Vandy, Tulsa, Tennessee, to name a few. But he earned a ton of recognition nationally, and what I'm really interested in discussing with him in his recruiting at UCLA, where he nabbed Russell Westbrook before anyone else knew who he was, plus signed huge names like Kevin Love and Darren Collison, and put the Bruins back on the national map in the process. Keating spent the last nine years as head coach at Santa Clara. I'm delighted to talk to him about all of that. Kerry Keating, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate joining us. Kerry, I always like to start the podcast off by asking people, what's your earliest basketball memory? Funny, it's uh, kind of strange. My, my dad was a stalwart at the five-star basketball camps that were prominent, mostly on, obviously on the East Coast, but, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, before AAU kind of took over the world, and it was the way of the world for developing coaches and players, and Himself being a coach on Long Island at Hofstra University, uh, got his start at Stonehill uh, before that, where he graduated from. And my earliest memory, as crazy as it seems, I've been telling my boys about this, they're six and four now, was about their age, maybe a little bit younger, and joining my dad at camp at Wheeling College in West Virginia and sitting at one of those big old cafeteria round tables eating breakfast out of a box. You know, we used to eat those uh, cereal boxes, those frosted flakes in the box. He'd open up the top and just pour the milk right in the wax paper there. With Hubie Brown and Chuck Daly and Mike Fratello, my dad, these are all guys that were, you know, coaching uh, at the camp. Uh, Hubie Brown, one of the originators of of the coaches uh, fraternity at Five Star Camp, and I was fortunate enough to be exposed to that at a young age. I don't know if you consider it a basketball memory, but it's certainly basketball-related, uh, and certainly my earliest memory of being involved with coaches, certainly at the highest, the very highest level, with guys like that involved at Five Star. I think it goes without saying that's the best earliest basketball memory anyone's ever, <laughs> ever told. Me. So, what did you learn from those guys at that age? Well, you know, I can't tell you what I learned from them, but I can tell you that I got indoctrinated into coaching uh, by being around guys like that. And then, obviously, my dad coached until he became an athletic director in the mid-'80s, actually a little bit earlier than that. Uh, And I, by association with the Five Star family, was able to grow into that uh, at a very, very young age. You know, as soon as we started high school uh, as a camper. And, you know, back in those days, these these what would be considered top 50, top 100 players by virtue of rankings and pundits and evaluators and services, Five Star would try to get as many of those kids as they could into their second Pittsburgh session, which was right in the middle of the July recruiting period. But they'd also require the best kids to come a second week. 
And what the directors of the camp would do, uh, Howard Garfinkel in particular, rest in soul, passed away this past uh, spring, um, they would work, uh, physically work the camp as waiters in the cafeteria. So all the table setups, the cleanup, um, you know, delivering of food to the head table, um, basically keeping the, the cafeteria clean and tidy was up to the best players in the camp. So although it was something that not everybody got a chance to do, the rite of passage and, and pretty much a badge of honor, if you knew that you were one of the waiters, you were one of the best players, and, and you got to work those two weeks in exchange for paying for only one week. So you didn't really get paid to work other than the chance to go to camp for a second week. I certainly wasn't good enough to be one of those waiters, uh, but having uh, been around the camp all my whole life, being raised in the camp by my dad at a young age and then becoming a camper, there were other jobs that had to get done in the camp, and I took on one of those both in the canteen, uh, helping out uh, selling the, the, the canteen goods, the, the, the camp gear and the candy and the soda and the food, but also as a ball boy. You know, when we were done with a uh, session and headed up to lunch or to dinner or to a, to a um uh, a lecture, I was responsible for keeping all the balls, you know, in the camp so we didn't lose any and organized. And that became my way of, of in, in essence, offsetting my cost to camp. You fast forward to my senior year in high school, and I literally, we had seven sessions of five star camp one at Radford University, two at Honesdale and Bryn Mawr Campgrounds in Pennsylvania, and four in a row at Robert Morris College in the four July weeks. I did all seven weeks, uh, and, and I, to my knowledge, may be the only camper, uh, not worker, not coach, but camper, to physically be involved in the camp as a camper for seven weeks back in the day. And I went to camp for four, and I was a ball boy for three. And then when I was in camp, obviously was summoned to do some odd jobs here and there, whether it was working in the canteen or helping with the ball boys, or what I took advantage of, knowing all the coaches, I got to stay up late. I didn't have a curfew. I stayed up during the draft on the first night till 2, 3 in the morning. The coaches would go down the street to the ground round and X and O and just kind of chop it up, and I would go down there with them. Uh, no one ever told me no because the days that I was working, I was able to be there. So I really kind of double-dipped on that. I'm really fortunate to have Will Klein and, and Howard Garfinkel, the camp directors, allow me to do that and to grow into it. And, Adam, it was such an unbelievable breeding ground, not just for players, but for coaches, I mean, there's a laundry list of coaches at the very highest level all the way down to still this day at the high school level that have direct ties and a foot in the five-star door uh, to be able to work the stations, to be able to, to be a coach in, in camp. For me, knowing I wanted to be a coach rather than a player, I mean, I really wanted to be a baseball player. Maybe we can get into that later. <laughs> but I, I took that as something that I couldn't wait to get to coach because I was around these coaches. I, I got my first job, you mentioned Wake Forest, solely based on the fact that two of the coaches that were prominent at Five Star during the mid-'80s were Dave Odom and Jerry Wainwright. Uh, they used to hire college coaches to be, quote-unquote, head coaches for the camp. They would essentially organize and run the coaches. During my prime years in high school and on my later years, as I started to get into college at Seton Hall and continue to work the camp, Dave Odom was the head coach. Uh, Jerry Wainwright was a coach in the camp. Uh, literally, when I graduated Seton Hall in 1993, 
It was a matter of making a few phone calls, and Dave Odom created a position for me at Wake Forest. You can believe this, in 1993, they did not have an administrative assistant or a director of operations at all these schools. I was the first director of basketball operations slash administrative assistant slash video coordinator, fourth assistant, really. They didn't know what to call it, <laughs> and got paid a 1000 bucks a month. I hopped in a car in the summer and drove down to Wake Forest, and there's Tim Duncan waiting for me in my first job uh, as a college quote-unquote coach. So Five Star was such a prominent part of my life, and, and I was fortunate to get out to, to Coach Garfinkel's memorial service this past May uh, after he passed away and you know, pay my respects not only to the camp and to the coaches that came before me, but get a chance to say hello to the Klein family and just be amongst friends and just recall all the times that we had. And Gosh, it's such an unbelievable and fortunate time in my life that just doesn't exist for young coaches nowadays. And it's really hard to swallow when you have all these young coaches asking me, how do you get started? How do you get in? You know, and that was such a, an entryway for all these great coaches. And again, you can, you can probably go through 10 coaches off the top of your head. And I'd be willing to bet you at least half of them, if not almost all of them had something to do at some point in their life with five-star. Yeah. You know, time and time again, I've heard from coaches that exact sentiment that, that's where they got their start. That's where things really clicked. That's where they got their coaching training. We've talked about it on the podcast. Seth Greenberg spoke at length about about five star. We just got you know coach after coach, notable name after notable name uh, has talked about that. You spoke about the idea that you go to Wake Forest and while you're there, the Demon Deacons I know had Randolph Childress and Duncan went to the second round of the NCAA tournament. What was Tim Duncan like at that time? <laughs> You know, it was amazing. I remember driving down there in September. I just loaded up the car with whatever I could and just headed all the way down North Carolina. And I got there on a on a mid midweek night, and they had just gotten done playing pickup. And of course, the rules then coaches weren't allowed to be in the gym. And I distinctly remember walking to the office. All the coaches are huddled around Coach Wainwright's desk, and uh, and Randolph is in there still sweating, and he's up there delivering the messages of what was going on in the pickup games. And he was talking at the time about, I want him on my team every time. I'm going to make sure he's on my team every time. And he was obviously talking about Tim. The coaches almost felt like they literally had no idea how good Tim was. I mean, it, the backstory on Tim about being an Olympic swimmer and an Olympic hopeful in swimming and then having the pool back at, back home wiped out by, I believe it might have been Hurricane Andrew, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have my hurricane history uh, handy. Um, and then, of course, they, they had a player, I think it was Chris King, playing at that time down uh, in the Virgin Islands that told the staff about them. I think Providence might have knew about, about them somehow, but I don't really know how well they understood how good Tim was. They knew he was long and athletic and an Olympic hopeful in swimming and, and, and a great kid. Uh, but but it was almost like they were learning about him through this this process in the early summer, late summer, early fall. And I tell you, we, we I think it was one of our first few games. He blocked like six or seven shots for us, Appalachian State, and he recovered like four of them. And I remember during one time at the time I was sitting next to Jerry Wainwright, and he just turns and he's like, "Can you believe this effing guy? Like this guy's unbelievable!" Like they literally like were figuring out how good he was as the season was going along, and then man. I, I remember in the middle of the season, I think it was on, on winter break, he had chicken pox. He actually contracted chicken pox as a freshman at Wake Forest. No one uh, had already had chicken pox on the staff except for me. 
So, of course, in your medical knowledge, you can't get it twice. So I was the only one allowed to be around Tim for like this four or five day incubation. We were like we were we were like secluded in the upper gym. And for like all his workouts for two days, three days were just me and him in the gym. And I'm just like this first year coach. Like, I don't know. I'm just over there rebounding for him. I'm not going to teach him anything. And it was just the two of us in the gym. And it was like he's exactly the same then as he is now. Like his demeanor, his appearance, his approach. I mean, it's amazing to think he's still playing to this day. I mean, to think back of where I've been since my first job at Wake Forest in 1993 and all these years and trials and tribulations and travels and players and this game and that game, and he's still playing, let alone for the same team, uh, you know, three years after that year graduating. It just speaks volumes to the type of person he is and. You know, I don't know if you're going to get too much argument, obviously, at his position, or maybe if you just put five best players of all time in the NBA down, he's one of those guys. To think that for three days in his freshman year at Wake Forest, who am I? Just some, you know, lowly kid from New York who got a job at Wake Forest as the first administrative assistant for a thousand bucks a month. And I'm in the gym for him just rebounding these short bank shots that he's still shooting now right off the board <laughs> for like two, three days because no one else could be around him because he had chicken pox, man. I, I just think back about how, how, how time has changed and evolved and really proud to, to have been a part of that. You know, I, I don't think I had anything to do with teaching him anything, but uh, in, in whatever small chapter is written about it, if it ever is, I know I'll have a little piece of it. I, I can't wait for Tim Duncan's Hall of Fame induction speech when he says, <laughs> you know, those three days with Kerry Keating, my freshman year changed my, my life forever. I, hey, if he just remembers him, that's good enough. <laughs> I don't even know if he remembers it. But, you know, he's been through so much and done so much, but... I wouldn't be surprised if he, hey, did everyone, did you ever have chicken pox? He'll be, hey, you know what I did? I couldn't <laughs> practice for three days. And some kid was rebounded for me. Exactly. Yeah, you never know. I want to backtrack for a moment. You played at Seton Hall as a walk-on for P.J. Carlissimo. And it's really incredible to me because it's almost like, you know, you've had all these moments where you seem to be in the mix with just historical people, historical figures. And obviously a lot of that has to do with with yourself and what you created, but there's something just incredible when you look back at, at your journey, and, and we'll get to these these people that have shown up along the way, but what was it like playing for, for Coach Carlismo and then and then later just working as a student assistant with him while you were at Seton Hall? You know, it's amazing how, how things that happen or don't happen lead to the next thing happening, and what I mean by that is I had fully intended go to North Carolina and play JV basketball, maybe get a call up to be on the bench. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to go through all the managerial duties because I knew I'd already starting in a coaching track with my aforementioned time at Five Star. And my dad and I took a trip and we visited Virginia, Wake Forest, NC State, Duke, and Carolina. We did the whole drive down and kind of go through all the schools. And obviously, based on our relationships, we knew – uh, a lot of the coaches, but but the one thing that stuck out to me was the time I got a chance to actually sit down with Coach Williams, who was an assistant at the time. This was the mid '80s, um, and we talked about playing JV, uh, possibly playing enough to to maybe get onto the team as a senior. But really, he understood where I wanted to go with it. Oddly enough, I went to a Catholic high school. We transferred from Archbishop Malloy when my dad got the Seton Hall job, and we finished the Seton Hall prep. 
And the only now, this may be the guy the counts are telling me this because in hindsight, I'm not sure this is necessarily the truth. <laughs> the only Jewish kid in the school applied to North Carolina with myself. There were two kids from Seton Hall Prep in my senior year that applied to North Carolina. Myself and the only Jewish kid in the Catholic high school in West Orange, New Jersey. And I'm not so sure his grades and his test score are that much better than mine. And I'm, I'm not sure if the guidance counselor was telling me the truth when he said, well, I think they took him as a minority admit. I don't to believe that <laughs> for a second. But be that as it may, I didn't get into North Carolina. I, I was devastated. And, and it ended up me staying at Seton Hall with the idea that I was going to play baseball at Seton Hall. I was a way better baseball player than a basketball player and really had a genuine love for baseball as a player. And I went to Seton Hall. Now, think about this now. I'm going to Seton Hall after a run at, uh, on the baseball program that saw Mo Vaughn, Craig Biggio, Martise Robinson, who was the leading uh, uh, batting average in the NCA with Robin Ventura in the, in their, in, from Oklahoma State, all on the same team, John Valentin. These guys were all at Seton Hall right before I had gotten there. So my dad's the AD. So I'm getting exposed not only to basketball, but I'm getting exposed to Hall of Famers on a baseball level, and that's where I want to go. So I'm thinking, well, heck, I just go there and play baseball. Well, truth be known, my dad and PJ working together at Seton Hall in lockstep and being way ahead of the game. Uh, and you can talk about all this technology and how it's taken over college basketball and athletics. I got to give my dad credit where credit is due. He's the ultimate tech guru. He's the guy that gets it and kind of had the vision for it. He was the first, uh, it became, Seton Hall became the first college basketball program to utilize computerized editing for video. So what that meant for me was PJ and my dad sitting down with me and saying, we're not, we're not going to be able to hire anybody. Again, think about this now. You know, there weren't, like I said, three or four years later, there weren't administrative assistants or specialized video coordinators or operations guys. They were just basically three assistants and maybe a GA. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going to hire somebody or let their GA do this. So they saw me having accelerated my coaching uh, career by being a coach in five-star while I was in college. Um, I'm going to be the first digital editing video coordinator in the country at Seton Hall. But they couldn't get the system until my sophomore year. We lost a bunch of players for some odd reason after the Final Four run when we lost to Michigan 89. And there were about four or five walk-ons that year, my freshman year. So PJ says, let's just have you walk on, be a part of the program, and then next year you'll start being our video coordinator. So baseball was out. My coaching career was officially launched, and I became the first digital editing, computerized editing video coordinator in college basketball in 1990. And here we are today talking about it 26 years later. It, it was an amazing experience. And I tell you what it did for me, Adam, it, I, I lived in the dorms with the players my freshman year. We didn't have specialized dorms. But we all lived in the upperclassmen dorms. So, so I tell this to people all the time. I literally got a chance to, to be a coach while I was a sophomore in, in college. Like I look at what I had at Santa Clara. We had at UCLA. We had at least one, sometimes two video guys. Maybe a GA was helping with video. And here I am as a sophomore, 19-year-old kid in, in college, sitting with a Final Four, a national championship game coach and coaching staff, two years removed from getting you know, upset by, by a bad call in the national championship game, and I'm breaking down all their video for them as part of their preparation till all odd hours of the night. And whenever it was that I got a chance to go back to the dorm, 
I would listen to the players complain about the coaches, having just sat to listen to the coaches complain about the players. And I'm literally sitting in the middle of all this, like, this is the best education I can ever get. Talk about player relations. And I really, thinking back on it, attribute any strength that I was able to gather in being a successful recruiter, which to me is all about a relationship with the family, with but more importantly with the kids, the kind of seeing the dynamic on both sides that no one else can see. And by no means was I running back to the office and saying, hey, Terry Walker and Terry DeHare and our tourist pernicious, they're bitching about this. And by no means was I going back to the players and saying like, yeah, Coach Sullivan and Coach Brown, they can't stand the way you do this. By no means was it, but I literally played both sides to the middle because I was able to and was able to learn how both felt about each other and this dynamic. And obviously during that time, they think about that, those three years as video coordinator, we, we won the Big East tournament or regular season in all three years. I think one year we won both. In the odd years, we won one or the other. We went to the Elite Eight. And in my sophomore year, we were probably going into the tournament one of the best teams, if not playing the best in the country. We just beat Syracuse by 33 points in the Big East final game heading into the NCAA tournament. Ended up getting a two-seed, got shipped out west, and the only team, probably the only team in the field of 64 that we literally could not beat was Vegas, and they were the one seed. That was the 1990 year in the classic Vegas-Duke matchup. I tell you, you go back to the time where Coach K and, and, and PJ were friends and became friendly up to the time they were assistants together with Chuck Daly on the, on the Dream Team. I remember Coach K calling and talking to PJ about a free tournament saying, man, I'm so glad they didn't send you down here with us. We can't beat you. The only <laughs> team that could have beat us was Vegas. So, you know, you got to, here it is, the justification from getting the bad call from Clockerty in 89. We're going to skate through this thing. And where do they send us? Right back out west, where we just kind of became the, you know, the, the de facto west team from the east for all those years. We were, we were out west, I think, three or four years at, at, at a, in a stretch. And Man, when Larry Johnson and Moses Scurry and that team, we just we were too young. We were a bunch of freshmen, sophomores, played really well, coming off a great, great victory in the Big East tournament, and lost in the Elite Eight. We got to the final eight and lost, and then um, were able to get back to the tournament two more years. Where my senior year, we were ranked number one in some publications. Got upset in the second round by Ralph Willard in Western Kentucky in Orlando. Um, I think uh, I think Darren Horn was on that team, and they had another really good guard. I can't recall his name, uh, but we got upset. We got upset my senior year, and uh, but a great run. We won a bunch of games, three Big East tournament titles. I saw Terry DeHare become the all-time leading scorer in Big East history at the time. Uh, got a chance to really learn and grow as a coach, as a player, and all the things that became an extension of being involved in that really had a lot to do with what were my success. Uh, was able to sustain that success after graduating from there. You must also have been the the only player that I can imagine where the head coach is saying, hey, why don't you be a player on the team for a little bit? Then we'll get you on to the uh, coaching, administrative <laughs> side. Usually it, it goes the other way. Kerry, after you, um, you're at Wake Forest, as you talked about, then you go to Vanderbilt under Jan Van Bredikoff, back to Seton Hall, under George Blaney and then Tommy Amaker for a stretch. And that's when Seton Hall sort of had its resurgence and and all the the great recruiting and and Adrian Griffin and um, some of the talented players, Shaheen Holloway, who has to go down as one of the best ball handlers of all time. I think people miss out on him, a kid from the class of 96, I think, 
who's just one of the yep. f- most fabulous uh, ball handlers I've ever seen. Just super talented point guard. But then you go to Appalachian State uh, under Coach Buzz Peterson, who you coached with at Vanderbilt, and uh, you sort of follow him around, you know, from App State to Tulsa to Tennessee. And the big question I have for you about Buzz Peterson is he's got a great relationship with Michael Jordan. So what's your best Michael Jordan story? <laughs> Probably the best one is that I never got a chance to beat him. Of all the time and relationship I had with Buzz, uh, never got a chance to, to, to physically spend any time. Uh, other than when I had left Buzz, uh, I got a chance to go to game two of the Jazz Series in Chicago because one of our managers at Seton Hall at the time uh, and this might even predate me going back with Buzz, I think, if I have my timeline right, uh, trying to follow it. One of the managers at Seton, our head manager at Seton Hall was Michael Oakes. His dad, Bill Oakes, is a legendary NBA official, was refereeing game two. I don't think it was the flu game, or I'm not sure if it was the game where he hit the shot on Byron Russell. I, I, but I remember the series being in Chicago. Michael and I, Michael gets two tickets from his dad. He says, hey, let's. We can get there. Let's get the flights. I get the flights. He gets the tickets. And Mike and I go to the game. And I reconnect with Buzz in the hallway after the game, uh, game two against the Jazz. And it was the only time I got a chance to meet Mike. I, matter of fact, I think that was before. I, obviously, it was because I was at Seat Home. Before I left Seat I'll go back with Buzz. Uh, reconnected with Buzz a little bit and got a chance to introduce myself and say hi and shake hands with Michael. And that was it. So then I go down and work with Buzz because we had been at Vanderbilt. That's where we started our relationship. We were assistants at Vanderbilt and got really, really close. Uh, so much so that I left my alma mater to go work with them at Appalachian State. You know, some might consider it a step backwards, obviously leaving a place like Seton Hall in the Big East to go down to Appalachian State. But I had such trust and faith in Buzz and was so close with them at that time. Uh, so I'm figuring, okay, I'm going back down to work for Buzz. I'm, you know, we're down in North Carolina. He's, I'm definitely going to meet Michael Jordan. It never happened. <laughs> like even even the closest of guys at that time in the heyday of Michael Jordan. Uh, I got a great Tim Duncan story for you, but I can't throw a Michael Jordan story. Other than I slept in his roommate's college roommate's best friend's home basement for two years when I worked at App State, because that's what I did. I I took a huge pay cut to leave Seton Hall, and my dad would would have killed me had I known at the time. I I literally went down to App State for about a 75%. I think there was still a restricted earnings thing going on at the time because I was involved in the restricted earnings case as well for those four or five years. Uh, I had no benefits, was working for like 18 grand for a year. So I lived in Buzz's bedroom in his basement in Boone for two years. I literally, when, when his first son, uh, Rob, was born, and Rob will be a senior in high school next year, I literally put him to sleep down in the basement on my chest before I went to bed every night. And it's funny because I've been talking to Buzz recently about the fact that, you know, Rob is getting ready to be recruited and is a nice player in his own mind, in his own right. He'll be a, you know, good mid-major, if not higher, a shooter. Uh, how here we are 16 years later. I was there when Buzz's son was born, and now he's getting ready to be recruited. And he was joking with his mom how he wanted to come out and play for me out in California. Of course, I was still at Santa Clara at the time. And his mom, like, flipped the lid because, of course, now this means, oh, I'm moving out to California, too. So Buzz is like, listen, you can't recruit him because now it's going to mean Jan's going to want to go out to California. <laughs> so, yeah, all kind of coming back around. But uh, never led to a great Michael George story. Uh, only led to us winning championships at App State in Tulsa and, uh, and a great two-year run for me at Tennessee. That ultimately led to me getting a chance to go out to UCLA. 
and that's what I want to get to. At Tennessee, obviously, you had some top recruiting classes. You really started to be recognized, at least within college basketball circles, as one of the best recruiters in the country. You land C.J. Watson out of out of Las Vegas, who turns out to be an NBA player. You're really rolling. You end up as a UCLA assistant coach under Ben Howland in 2003. At the time, Scout.com is calling you the most high-tech assistant in the nation. Athlon's calling you one of the top 10 assistant coaches in the country. Now, everything is just sort of rolling along, rolling along. And what I really want to get to is the idea that you recruited some absolute superstars, as I mentioned off the top of the show. Russell Westbrook was number four in the 2008 NBA draft. Kevin Love went number five in that draft. Darren Collison goes number 21 in the the, the 09 draft. I first want to hear about about Darren Collison's recruitment, and we'll get to Kevin Love and, and Russell Westbrook. But how about Darren Collison when you uh, when you first got a chance to see him? You know, the longer you're in this business, there's a there's a hard work and, and luck factor meeting and combining to make an opportunity. And um, you know, I think the more you're around really good people, the more you surround yourself with great people, and you go back to what we talked about being exposed at a very early age to coaches and mindsets and recruiters. And, and of course, my dad being in the middle of that before he got into administration in the, in the late seventies, uh, he left, he left Hofstra after he coached at Hofstra to be an, uh, an AD at a school named the Delphi. It's a, it's a small division two slash division one school in garden city, Long Island, uh, right next to where we grew up in Rockwell center. Uh, which another great story we can get to the fact that I shared a, a street we grew up on with Billy Donovan right at the end of the street, which is again, you never know how things are going to come full circle. But he's at Adelphi. They had a Division One soccer program, a Division One softball program, a Division One um, lacrosse program, and a Division One track program. The rest of their sports, if I recall, were Division Two at the time. There was more prominent that schools weren't fully immersed in, but some schools, some sports went Division One. Well, Dennis Collison and June Griffin um, were track athletes at Adelphi in the 80s when my dad was the AD there. And hmm. June, who, be, who later married Dennis and became obviously Darren's parents, June was a was a unbelievable athlete. And, and I remember when this came about with Darren, my dad telling me a story how they went out and ran their relay team, their four by one, and again, she's she's dealing with the flow, the flow Joes and the Jackie Joyner Curses. She's in that that level. She never matriculated to be uh, as successful as they were. But she wasn't a full American citizen, uh, but she was friendly with them. She ran in those circles. What I come to find out from June is there's, a, there's very much a I wouldn't say an ego, but 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 uh, but I it's hard to t- hard to describe. You don't want to embarrass yourself by not running the right times, by not running as fast as you can. Almost to the point where if you know you can't win, you almost don't run fast enough to make the heat. And the reason why I bring that up is June and and three walk-ons from Adelphi went out to a meet. I believe it was in Idaho one year. Uh, some some just. Uh, random track meet where the Russians at the time had held the world record for, I think the four by 100 beater relay. Well, June didn't think they had any chance to win. 
So she's basically telling her teammates, let's just go out and run. You know, if we don't make the first heat, then you don't get through the second heat. You get to the finals where they take the top eight teams and you finish out of the money and you get embarrassed. So just don't make it through the heat. Well, not only did they make it through the heat, they ended up breaking the world record at that time. <laughs> and this is it's her and three walk-ons. So that doesn't speak volumes to the, the type of athleticism Darren Collison inherited from his mom. And his dad was, was a pretty good track, track athlete in his own right, and nothing does. Now you fast forward to me being at UCLA. It's, it's uh, the middle of January. Darren's, I believe, sophomore, maybe junior year. I'm watching the MLA Classic uh, out of Riverside High School. And one of the games is Etiwanda versus whomever. And I'm watching uh, Darren play. And I'm literally just watching this kid going, man, this is exactly what Ben needs. Every time I saw a guy for the first time that stood out to me, all I wanted to do was figure, does he fit in with all these other guys? I constantly had roster projections in front of me when I was watching and evaluating guys because I wanted to see where it fit in. And I, I would literally have four-year projections in front of me. I'd have my folder in my notes with me, and I'd have a page with a four-year roster. It would be the current year and the next four years. And how it projected out in terms of positions and players and, and, and combinations of guys. And I remember watching this and seeing, I know we had Jordan, I knew we had Aaron, you know, I knew we had Josh Ship. Um, I, I believe at the time we had already secured Mike Roll, who again fit perfectly. And by the way, Mike Roll is still playing right now for, I think, his uh, mom's native country of Tunisia and maybe in the Olympics if they can qualify out of that, out of that bracket. Here's a guy, you know, that no one really recruited. He was a great scorer. But I watched him, Darren, play. And I'm like, God, this guy is long and he's fast. There's no one that can keep him in front of him. He had a tremendous finish. And I'm just, I'm just watching him get this great feel like this would be a great fit for us. He's way more uh, north to south fast than Jordan. Maybe not as – Jordan Farmer was a pretty good athlete back in the day. He might still be considered a pretty good athlete. <laughs> but Darren was a different type of athlete. So – you know, we're not allowed to talk to his parents during the game, and I don't really even know his parents are at the time anyway. But I go over to his AAU coach, Keith Howard. He played for IEDP, and I say, Keith, I, re I really like this kid. You know, I'm going to talk to Coach Kleckner about him after the game, and uh, but I'm interested in, in finding out if, if we can recruit him. And he takes the card and delivers it to June. And I'm telling you, you talk about her winning a relay in world record time. I felt like she was – standing behind me faster than I dropped the card on Keith, breathing down my neck. She goes, whoa, 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 Terry Keith, is your dad Larry? And I'm like, uh, yeah, and she loses it. She's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. This is incredible. This is unbelievable. Darren's going to UCLA. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. So she literally, like, declared right then and there, Darren's going to UCLA. And I had no idea. I'm like, I just want to recruit the kid. Well, it turns out that, because of the way that my father had treated June and Dennis when they were in school, coming from out of the country, being foreign, foreign uh, students, you know, nurturing them as athletes and had such a great experience out of all places at Delphi University. She knew how I was raised because she saw me running around the gym at Delphi, knee high to the ground. I didn't really know who she was back then, but she knew me because I was Larry's son. And the rest is history. It became... Darren was obviously good enough, and June wanted him to be at UCLA because she knew that I would take care of, much like my dad took care of June and Dennis. And we really had no competition for him. 
And I think the other part of it, too, was I don't think people evaluated him right. I don't think people evaluated Russell right. And I think I was, I was helped by that. But I definitely knew that we could get him. The only other school that was actively recruiting him for the next four or five months after his junior year uh, winter was San Diego State because his high school coach, David Kleckner, was an Aztec and called down and told him about him. So they were involved. They were recruiting him. But it wasn't a challenge. We brought Darren in in June. I sat him down with Ben. Ben had seen him play a couple of times. We got it done. And I remember getting all kinds of people. What are you doing taking him now? What are you doing taking There's so many better guys. That year, all due respect, the, the point guard du jour, the point guard of McDonald's All-American hierarchy was Greg Paulus. Okay? <laughs> that ought to tell you something. And I'm going to tell you something. I'll let you in a little secret. That also led me on a mission for the next two years because, hey, listen, I get in respect that you're at Duke. We can sit here and talk on another hour about my Duke experience as a college student working Duke's camp, as the only college student to ever work Duke's camp because they only allow college and high school coaches to work. I get Duke. I have a relationship with those guys. I worked with Tommy Amaker. I'm the only guy to ever work for a Carolina guy, Buzz Peterson, and a Duke guy, Tommy Amaker, little-known fact. My knowledge, no one has been an assistant or worked for both the Carolina and Duke coaching trees, uh, except for me. So I, I see this as like a slap in the face. I think Darren's tremendous. Obviously, he's proven that. Greg Paulus is not Darren Collison. Why am I taking all this heat for signing Darren Collison? It led me on this mission like, I'm going to work all these guys because I'm at UCLA. I'm going to get a guy that's not supposed to be a McDonald's All-American, a McDonald's All-American. Well, you can kind of figure that out. That definitely happened two years later. And all due respect to that player, because he had a great high school career, I knew that it could be done because we were at UCLA. But getting Darren to go there might have been the single biggest coup that we had because he wasn't expected to be, or at least I didn't expect him to be, and he stayed all four years. Got his degree and stayed true. Wasn't in a rush to came out. Saw Kevin leave early. Saw Russell leave early. Saw Luke leave early. Darren came back and finished up. I think that speaks volumes to him and obviously the way he was raised. That's pretty phenomenal. So then you got the other guard as you're talking about Russell Westbrook, who I'm just fascinated by. Obviously, the basketball world right now is is fascinated by what Russell Westbrook. But what makes that interesting is people weren't in the beginning. Um, he wasn't heavily recruited, at least as the story goes. So when did you first lay eyes on Russell Westbrook? So fortunately at UCLA, you have a lot of people that want to help you. Everybody wants to be a part of helping out UCLA. And I was uh, friendly enough and, and smart enough to, to treat people right. And uh, we took four or five scouting services. And one of the scouting services we took was called Networks. A guy by the name of Dave Nahabedian ran the scouting service. I trusted it. I had spoken to him when I was at Tennessee. I met him when I was watching C.J. Watson. We had met on the sideline. We hit it off. Uh, he helped me out with my West Coast stuff out when I was all the way out of Tennessee. And obviously when I got to UCLA, one of the first things I did, did was connect with, with Dave. Uh, Dave had told me about Russell his sophomore year. He was watching him in some random event uh, as a five foot ten sophomore. And he's just a bat out of hell running around. He says, hey, you know, there's this kid down here losing here. He's, he's a little tiny kid, but he's playing. And just something about him, I really like him. So you should check him out. So... I'm not, you know, too humble. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the advice, and, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna turn over every stone and take every lead that I can. Got a chance to watch him a little bit that summer, and he was right. He was five foot ten. He never stopped running around. 
He played as hard as he plays right now, but he just looked different. Uh, but there was something about him. Again, I think, think back to what I was saying. I'm sitting there evaluating him, figuring out our roster. The first thing I wanted to do was, one, is he tough enough to play for Ben? Not is he a UCLA-caliber kid, because that, to me, is really what can get you in trouble. If you're sitting there worrying about if this kid is that good, if it's not that obvious to everybody, if it's not Kevin Love, who's the number one player in the class, what is it about him that can help you build this program, build the team? Because that's what we were doing at UCLA. We were building the program. We were fortunate to have Jordan Farmer and Aaron Afalo and Josh Schiff and Lorenzo Motti. Think about that class of, of 04. Mm-hmm. The first four guys at Ben Stein are all local kids from Los Angeles. And only Jordan and really Aaron, and to a lesser extent Josh, got the accolades, were someone that were recruited at Florida, at Kansas, at, at other play. They were national recruits, a guy like Jordan. Aaron Afalo was going to go play UCLA if you coached there, if I coached there. It didn't matter. He was going to UCLA. And it just became a great fit when Ben got the job. He committed right away. Then Jordan. Now, what can we do around these guys? Now, certainly we can stay right here in L.A. and take maybe the best two or three kids. But, man, are we going to be able to get our entire roster filled by L.A. kids? Well, if that's how it has to be, that's how it has to be. And I say L.A., it's a pretty expansive area, as you know. It's not just the greater Los Angeles area or the valley. It's inland. It's, it, it can run a little bit further south, further north. Yeah, we can do that. But let's make sure that, that as we're doing that, no matter where it is, Will these kids, one, fit in what we're trying to get done here at UCLA? Are they championship-minded kids? Are they disciplined? Uh, do they want to be in the gym? Can they handle Ben's coaching and the, and the method of teaching, which is tremendous if you, if you focus on it? And that, that proved itself in Ben's tenure there, certainly the time I was there and I think even beyond in the next six years that Ben was there. My thing with Russell is, well, man, he's 5'10", but then I started watching, looking at him, and I started, started figuring out, like, I'm not so sure that he's immature because a lot of people miscalculated him as being an extremely immature kid as much as he was competitive. I always tell this story about him. I remember watching him one year, his junior year, after all this had started, and he goes in and gets a layup. He gets hit, gets knocked down, and it's the classic deal where he gets kind of hit in the head or hit in the arm, but he gets up and he limps because he doesn't know what to do. He's not hurt on his leg. His arm hurts, but he's limping. And, you know, some, some guys are, oh, that's a loser's limp. Hey, missed the layup. And there was just something about him that wasn't like that. It wasn't like he was some kid who wasn't good enough and had a loser's limp. He just didn't know how to react to things not going his way because he was so dang competitive. I mean, this dude, and obviously he's proven that to be right. Sometimes it's a crap shoot and you don't know. And just in getting to know him and what, what, what we were able to do Going into that summer, we were able to get an event organized uh, on campus at UCLA that we weren't allowed to go to, but was on campus at UCLA. So the kids were there playing in Pauly, walking around campus, and lo and behold, Russell's team was in it, so he, he got a chance to be on campus. So now my hook is, in the following weeks when I'm talking to him, you've been on campus. You've been inside Pauly. And now I just started into the whole thing about the possibility of it. And it starts taking on this life form, this relationship where, yeah, it's not really about being at UCLA as much as you notice that I have something that no one else is noticing. And his dad really appreciated that. And then it evolved. I think the only guy that I knew who ended up really wanting to sign Russell early his senior year was Sam Scholl, 
at the University of San Diego. Sam became one of my assistants for eight years at, San, at, at Santa Clara. It's the only guy that I knew out there that really wanted him then and there. Reggie, uh, Reggie Morris, his high school coach, had relationships with other guys that had been in it through L.A. Josh Oppenheimer, Brian, Brian Fish. So Creighton, Kent State, you kind of heard their names being thrown around a little bit. And then once he got past the early signing period, schools that had available scholarships, once they knew we were recruiting him and, it, and he didn't sign early, well, then it becomes the old adage, well, they're recruiting we must be recruiting them. And I never subscribed to that, but it happened. It happened at Miami, Wake Forest, Arizona State. And it certainly was good enough for that. Washington State started, started watching them. But I told Russell from the very beginning, when we got to September, and again, think back to this, this four-year schedule I have in my head. I know exactly where our roster is going to be. And I'm going to tell you something, Russell. I also know there's a probably, probably a 99% chance that if we're going to be as good as we are, that Jordan's going to leave. We've been to the Final Four now in his freshman year. Now expected to go his sophomore year. I think his mindset is that he wants to leave. He certainly wasn't saying that, but I think as an assistant, I kind of had a feel from him that he would do that. So I told I told Russell, just wait. There'll be a scholarship open in the spring. If there's a scholarship open, you'll end up going to UCLA. Just trust me on that. And it just had some things had to play out. And it ended up working out. But lo and behold, Jordan declares after we go to the Final Four again his sophomore year, we lose in the semis to Florida again. And now, or, or, or I think I, I, I take that back. We lost in the finals that year to Florida. That was Jordan's sophomore, mm-hmm. the only Final Four he went to. I misspoke there. And the day after Jordan declares, and you talk about the competitiveness of guys we had now, Aaron Afala walks in and says, I'm coming out too. If he can come out, then I'm coming out. I mean, this is how competitive these guys are. It's just incredible the level of competition internally between Jordan and Darren and Aaron and then Russell and then Kevin and guys like Mike Roll and Luke Bamute. Talent, talent notwithstanding, the level of competitiveness in that crew that we had that went to three straight Final Fours, I put it up against anyone at any time. And, and, and what happens is now we're in the office, and again, I got the chart. Here goes Jordan. Oh, no, Aaron's coming out. Well, Aaron could go in the first round, too. We just lost our starting backcourt. What do we do? Got a home visit set up tomorrow, Ben. We're going to go over to, 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 to Losinger. We're going to go to Hawthorne. We're going to sit down. We're going to get Russell done. Drove down there, sat in the home. Russell sat on the edge of the couch with his legs straight out, his hands in between his legs, didn't say a word. His mom and his dad asked some questions. I think it took a day or two before we realized that Jordan was going to stay. Aaron ended up, in hindsight, coming back. Russell committed. And I'm looking at him the whole time, Adam. I'm looking like, gosh, you know, he was 5'10". Now he's about 6'1". His feet are – and I said, I can't believe I never noticed this. His feet are huge. I think he had the same size feet now that he had then. So I think they're about 15. And I'm like, this dude's going to grow more. I'm like, man, this is going to get better. And I'm just sitting there saying to myself, like, this is going to get better. And all the things that I knew about Russell and his dad and his brother and Kelsey Bars, his friend who tragically passed away while they were students at Losinger, it was just a fit from a competitive standpoint. And although the first two weeks of Russell's tenure and career at, at, at UCLA ended up in him getting kicked off the practice court repeatedly because he was just going crazy in his mind because Ben wanted to do things that he didn't understand, I think it ended up working out pretty good. A couple more Final Fours, and now Russell's set to become maybe 
after next year could become one of the richest players ever in NBA history when he redoes his contract. But I'm just so so lucky and fortunate to, to have trusted the right people, uh, to have learned how to develop relationships, uh, to be able to kind of put that forth. And think about this. I, I didn't recruit in California until we got to Tulsa. Think about the, the, how this all came about. I leave Seton Hall because I have a relationship with Buzz Peterson. I go to Appalachian State. We win 44 games in two years, win the conference regular season twice, win the, win, win the tournament once, go to the NCAA tournament, get a chance to go to Tulsa. We're in Tulsa for eight months. We won 26 games, win the NIT. I get a chance to go back home to the garden, cut the nets down in the garden of all times uh, as an assistant at Tulsa and NIT. At the time, Tulsa was one of 16 teams in the old WAC conference. 33% of the athletes from Tulsa were from California because of that. So I said, hey, we got to get out to California. My recruiting in California started when I was at Tulsa. Little known fact about Tulsa because we ended up not coaching there. In January of that season, I was sitting in the office with Eric Conkle, who was our graduate assistant at the time, is now the head coach at Louisiana Tech. And I was sitting there, and I was single at the time. I would constantly be in the office at Tulsa, Tennessee, UCLA, till 1, 2, 3 in the morning with our graduate assistants, with our office guys, just just thinking. I would blare Rocky Top at 2 o'clock in the morning in the office, but I'm sitting in there with at Tulsa, and I said, Eric, there's got to be someone in, bet- in, in between here and California that we're missing. There's so much – it's not as populated as it is going the eastern way, but are we missing anything? And I give Eric Conkle all the credit in the world. This was at the at the kind of the advent of Scout.com and, and Rivals. He brings in, a, a, I can't remember which one it was, a, a Rivals or a Scout article on Lewis Amundsen. And he says, hey, Coach, no one's recruiting this kid, and he's putting up these crazy numbers. This might be the guy you want to go see. The next two, next two weeks I spent in Colorado watching Lewis Amundsen twice. We had Lewis Amundsen committed to us three months later in April, and the reason why he didn't go to Tulsa is because we left. Ended up going to UNLV, and it's still to this day in the NBA. When you talk, it's easy to talk about Russell and Kevin and CJ. Lewis Amundsen committed to us at Tulsa, is a pro right now. Paul George committed to us at Santa Clara. Just talk about a guy who's a real pro right now. I mean, there's a lot of unwritten guys and not a lot of guys that are known that we've had a pretty good run of, of identifying talent and guys that can sustain it and have been able to make a living of it that I'm really proud of, but it never was done alone. It was always done with our staff, with our young guys, which is beating the bushes, following up on leads, being the first in the gym, last to leave, trusting your instinct. And then once that door was open with either the family or the high school coach or the AU coach, or it's more specifically the kid, it was just about being trustworthy and honest and upfront from the beginning, laying it all out. This is how it's going to be. I mean, I'm going to look back on my time at Santa Clara with a lot of what ifs, but I'm not going to look back at my time at Santa Clara and be, have any regrets about the fact that every single kid that played for me and finished his, finished his college career playing there graduated, but that we also were able to coach four of the top six all-time leading scorers in school history there. Like There were things that we did there that may never get done there again. We won two postseason championships there. All these things were based on relationships and trustworthy, honest-to-goodness, direct communication with kids and their families that led to, in some way or shape or form, all of them having a level of success that I'm really proud of. As you should be. As you should be. That's all remarkable stuff. 
we see this this guy that competes. We see the crazy outfits. We see the facial expressions. Um, we see the commercials. But I don't think any of us watching as fans truly knows Russell Westbrook. Who is he as a person? Well, I'd say the, 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 the one phone call I got from Sam Presti um, after the initial phone call pre-draft in 2008 from him and, and my college coach, who was the coach of the Thunder at the time, P.J. Carlissimo, the one call that I got, the one one mode of communication I had with Sam, where he was most happy and most proud, and it, it said a lot to me about not just Sam in Oklahoma City, but about what Russell was able to do, was when Russell won the Community Service Award. You know, Sam had had uh, had stayed in touch and contact, was really appreciative of the information I was able to give those guys pre-draft on Russell and the background and, and how we got to the point we were at. But, but I think that phone call told me what Russell really was. Now, think back to, to this. Kelsey Bars is a highly recruited student-athlete. Russell's best friend at losing her passes away, I think, of a heart condition in the middle of Russell's high school. He lived across the street from Russell. Every day, to my knowledge, and I, I think it was, if not every day, pretty close to every other day, both either before or after, maybe both, he made it a point to get over to Kelsey's house take out the trash, help his mom, help his family. Like, he just has it. I, I think w- what I was able to ascertain from my time as a head coach here in, in, a, in a unique place in Silicon Valley, being exposed to CEOs and, and, and ultra-mega-successful tech and VC guys was that I have a pretty good emotional quotient. I'd never heard of that before I'd become out here. You know, that this is before all this new way of thinking is now prevalent in, in Silicon Valley. This was eight or nine years ago. It's one thing to be intelligent and smart and have a high IQ, but as a leader, as someone who can make a difference, when you have a really high emotional coach, when you're emotionally connected to what you do, then it becomes really special. I think looking back on one of the reasons why Russell and I were able to develop the relationship of trust that led him to UCLA and now has become a, an unbelievable story, especially given, given recruiting and NBA uh, facts nowadays, is that he's emotionally connected too. He lets it all out. He wears it all on his sleeve. And he may get, you know, uh, criticized for being tough to play with, but I'm telling you, man, for him to win that community service award in the NBA, for him to start a foundation based on his relationship with Kelsey, why not? Why, why can't I do this? Why not? And it's become kind of his mantra. It, it, it kind of tells me, like, that we were right, that, that this, this is a really special person. And I, I think someone told me he's wearing all these outfits pregame that, that get all this attention, and he's got this affinity now for fashion, uh, which, which is unique and kind of fun, that he gives away his outfits after he wears them only once. I mean, he's not only earning it, but he's living it. You know, he, he's made an indelible impact on a community there that in Oklahoma City, uh, I think he, he earned a car from Kia for winning that community service award and immediately donated the car to a mother who had just lost hers or, or had it repossessed or was in a, a tough financial bind and, and had a big family and gave the van, the minivan. He's just a unique kid. He's just a great person. He's become a great man. He obviously had a chance to, to – what I'm most proud of is that if I didn't get him to UCLA, he wouldn't be married to Nina right now. You know, he met his wife at UCLA. So in some way, shape, or form, when I sit down, I reflect on things. I feel good about the fact that he's a great player and that he's had success and that he's, he's put himself in a great position to have continued success for him and his family for the rest of their lives. But I look at the fact like, well, what would have happened if we didn't get into UCLA? He wouldn't have ended up marrying Nina. 
All those things happen for a reason. And if the reason is that you're emotionally connected, and I think Russell is very emotionally connected, but he wears it on his sleeve during these games now. He lets it all out in what, what it seemingly looks like rage, but it's that competitiveness. I think back to his time when he was five foot ten, getting knocked on his butt as a little kid and limping, but he wasn't really hurt because he's competitive. But he has something in him. He's emotionally connected to himself, to his teammates, to, to his program, to his coach, to his family, to his community. Uh, he's a rarity. I, I think you don't find guys like that uh, nowadays. I think there's too many things and too many factors that can kind of affect that. I don't think Russell lets that affect him. And I'm, I'm hoping that if it doesn't work out at Oklahoma City and we'll see if they re-sign him, that if he gets a chance to come back to L.A., I think you'll see some pretty special things from him if he ever ends up living and working and playing back in L.A. You know, it's funny, you you can joke all you want about, or I can joke about the fact that Tim Duncan may not be mentioning you in the, in the Hall of Fame speech, but certainly you've had a tremendous impact on Westbrook's life as you as you just talked about. What do you think the relationship was like between him and Durant? Hard to tell, you know, because I don't know Kevin, obviously, as well as I know Russell, and a lot of those things have evolved, not they've become professional athletes over the last decade or so. Um, I think it's easy nowadays for, for, for uh, assumptions to be made because everybody's a pundit, everybody's a, an expert, everyone has something to say, and anyone can say anything on social media now. Uh, I would be willing to guess, and, and again, this is not fact as much as just what I ascertain, that the two of them probably share that competitiveness that I spoke with them earlier, like the guys we had at UCLA. Obviously, it led them to within one game of beating the Warriors and, and quite possibly could have ended up winning the NBA championship this year. You're talking about things happening for a reason and timing and how one thing can lead to 10 or different other, other things. You know, I, I think they survived with each other. I think they evolved. I saw Russell in the hallway after game two of the Western Conference Series with, with, uh, with, with, with Golden State. And I told him, because again, remember, now, I grew up with Billy Donovan on the same street. Mm-hmm. albeit he's a little bit older than I am back in Rockville Center. So I've known Billy. Billy and I have become friendlier and, and, and closer as we've gotten older. Um, I know where how he was raised. Our, our, our fathers and grandfathers were, were taking the train with, with each other back into the, into the city, uh, the Long Island Railroad. Like, I thought that Billy had a pretty good impact on Russell in particular. I thought that Russell really matured this year. And I told him as much that I could see him evolving. And it's funny because one of my college, one of my, my former Seton Hall Pirates, Mark Bryant, graduated a year before I got to Seton Hall, uh, is on the staff at Oklahoma City. And Mark's comment about Russell was, he's one of the smartest players on the team. I have to think that Kevin appreciated that. And it may be hard to, 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 to coexist when you're that dynamic, when you have those type of you know, joining forces coming together. You can maybe only go so far. Uh, I, think, I think Kevin certainly respected that. I can't speak for him to understand why why it changed like it did, and now Kevin's out here in the Bay Area. Uh, but Mark's comment about Russell's best year still being ahead of him when he learns how to slow the game down a little bit, he may be better as he gets older, kind of struck a chord with me that Russell still has a lot more left in his tank. And I think being the competitor that he is, be it staying at Oklahoma City or moving to another team in the Western Conference, be it in L.A. or anywhere in between or any one of the other 28 teams in the NBA, I think Russell's competitiveness will be that he wants to get back on the court on the other side of Kevin, and he wants to compete. He's going to want to compete with them, you know, knowing that they had a friendship that made them both very, very rich and also put them in a position to be deemed superstars in this league. you got to understand, they helped each other out. 
there's probably a level of respect there. Uh, I don't know exactly how close they were. I've never talked to Russell about that, but that's all water under the bridge now. we got to move on to the next step, and I'm excited to see what that means for both of us. Last question I have for you is you went from UCLA, like we talked about. You end up going to Santa Clara and become a head coach for the first time. For the assistant coaches out there, and there are plenty of them in college basketball, dreaming of becoming a head coach, what would you say is the most difficult transition from being an assistant coach to being a guy that's running his own program? You know, all the guys used to joke with me about moving 12 inches over in that seat and how how, how much, how uncomfortable it is. It's not a comfortable seat. Uh, and, and again, they always talk to your players about being uncomfortable. You know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I would say that's the, the one thing as a head coach, especially a first-time head coach, and, and maybe some of us aren't going to be blessed to be handed head coaching jobs at the very, very highest level with, with unlimited support uh, abound and on all levels. You have to wear all the hats, and you're not going to coach as much as you really want to coach. And you're going to try to, but as soon as you try to do that, something else is going to come up. You know, I think back our time and all the incidents that we had to deal with and the teaching points and inevitable things that happen when kids are 20, you know, 19, 20 years old in college, you just feel this ultimate responsibility for them. I remember my first four or five years, I was sleeping three, four hours a night if I was sleeping at all, just because I always felt this ultimate responsibility that everything, you know, had to be handled properly. And I wanted it, and I was teaching everybody. You know, I, I was every, all, everyone on my staff was a first timer. You know, that was my first time as being a head coach. We only had a few guys able to come for us from, from UCLA as young guys. So I was constantly in this teaching mode. What I'm proud of is that it led to championships in year four and year six, and record of win amount totals, and kids graduating, and also having some nice superlatives individually. You you need to be ready to handle anything and everything, but you need to have fun. You need to really, really have fun and enjoy doing it. I'm really proud of the staffs that we had and the kids that we had. I wouldn't trade those nine years and the relationships that we developed. We had a chance to watch a lot of kids uh, become born from my family to our assistants' families. you got to be ready to have fun. Take some pressure off yourself by having a great staff. Take your time and put your staff together. Uh, really get trustworthy and honest guys that are going to help you have your best interests in mind and want to become head coaches through your success. Uh, but don't rush it. It's going to be there once you get that to that point. You really got to relish it, make the most of it, because you may not get another chance at it. Coach, I really, really appreciate the time, and I appreciate the insight. I hope to have you on again soon, and we can we can talk a little bit more, maybe dive deeper into uh, Ben Howland and Billy Donovan and Coach K and and all those others you've had relationships with. But I've certainly learned a ton just listening to you over the past hour. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Lots to talk about. Let me know anytime. Be happy to do it. Thanks for having me on today. That's Kerry Keating. You can catch him on Twitter at Kerry Keating 3. That's K-E-R-R-Y-K-E-A-T-I-N-G 3. I'm Adam Stanko. You can catch me on Twitter at Naismith Lives, and you can catch this podcast on Twitter at Great Point Pod. Check us out on iTunes. Make sure to give us a rating. You know, hopefully it's a five. Uh, you know, that's what obviously I'm aiming for. But, you know, just any rating at all would be uh, beneficial to us. Give us a little review, some feedback. Always appreciate you listening. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. That'll do it for this episode of the podcast. And we'll catch you next time.